The other day I was sitting having my breakfast coffee, casting my eyes around for some high-quality reading material, as you do, when for the first time I noticed what was written on the back of my deodorant. (laughs) The wind picks up as the sun begins. The boat cuts through the water like a razor blade. The sweet sea air fills your lungs as you head back to civilization. Today you conquered the ocean. (laughs) Now own the night. (laughs) Well, that's the world for you, isn't it? Promising you the dream and delivering you, well, a can of cheap deodorant. In the ideal, yes, our lives would be an idyllic yacht cruise where the wind picks up as the sun begins to set, the boat cuts through the water like a razor blade, the sweet sea air fills your lungs as you head back to civilization. But in the reality... The wind picks up and turns into a hurricane. The boat launches to and fire until you get perilously seasick. And you're just desperate to stay on board and stay afloat, let alone return to civilization. You might be sailing through a horrendous storm yourself right now. A family crisis, overwhelming trouble at work or in your study, financial trouble, people harassing you, physical or mental health disasters, a catastrophe in your relationships. Or then again, maybe your sky is clear and your voyage is smooth. For now. But chances are, somewhere, perhaps, there's clouds gathering on your horizon. There are two different incidents where Jesus rescues the disciples from a furious storm while they're out sailing. The fact that these are two different incidents is important, something I'll return to later. But let me begin by reading them both. The first is recorded in Matthew 8, Mark 4 and Luke 4. And this is Mark's version. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowds behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Now the the second incident is later on, 
and recorded in Matthew 14, Mark 6 and John 6. And that's from Matthew. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he said goodbye to the crowds. After he dismissed the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. And the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret. Well, there's much to be learned from these two events, and I haven't time to cover it all, but I'm just going to discuss a few key things. In the first storm, the disciples turned to Jesus in desperation, only to find he snoring away at the back of the boat. Now, I've known some deep sleepers, but this is something else. Don't make the mistake of thinking this is mild, bad weather. In the original Greek, Matthew writes that it is like a seismos megas. A mega seismic. A massive earthquake. Well, many of us here know what going through one of those is like, don't we? And remember, several of these disciples in the boat are professional fishermen. They've seen a few storms in their time, and this is right up there. How could Jesus sleep through this? I love the little touch of detail that Mark records. Not only was Jesus asleep, Mark makes a point of telling us Jesus was asleep on a cushion. Just to emphasise that here they are frantically scrambling about the boat and there's Jesus, snuggled up on a nice, comfy cushion. No wonder they shouted at him. Don't we care if we drown? In the second storm, Jesus isn't even in the boat with them. He sent them on ahead while he stayed behind. Interesting, isn't it? The very moment a horrendous disaster strikes our lives is the moment it often seems God is asleep on the job or missing in action. You want to 
grab a hold of Jesus and shake him. And I'm sure the disciples shook the snoozing Jesus. And you want to shout at him just like they did, Don't you care, Jesus? Don't you care if I drown? I'm drowning, God. Don't you care? Have you ever felt like that? Like your prayers are falling on deaf ears? Like God is oblivious to your pain? Like your cries for help are echoes in the darkness? I bet some of you have. It's an awful feeling. I think perhaps one of the worst feelings you can ever experience. Like God's abandoned you in your greatest need. But as these two incidents demonstrate, it's a feeling. And that's all it is. A feeling, not the truth. You see, in both incidents, while Jesus seemed to be leaving them to drown, he was not. Listen again to how these two events both begin. Before the first storm, Mark writes, That day, when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. And the same before the second storm. Matthew writes, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Jesus had not abandoned them. He had already told them they're going to the other side. And he means we are going to the other side. No ifs, no buts, no maybes. We're going to the other side. No matter what trouble the world hurls against us, we're going to the other side. That's why I said to them, Why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? By the time the first storm occurred, the disciples had already seen Jesus do a number of significant miracles in their lives and the lives of others. They should have trusted him and trusted that God loved them and God cared for them. But no, as soon as the storm struck, they panicked. They forgot all about the other incredible things he'd done in their lives and assumed that he just didn't care about them. There's a reason I wanted to make a point of covering both storms in the one sermon. One of the things that greatly amuses me is that frequently those who argue that the Gospels are not reliable use as evidence the presence of multiple similar events. 
They say, well, we have this one passage that says there was a storm and Jesus was asleep in the boat. And we have this other one where Jesus is up a mountain at the time. Well, obviously, whoever wrote the Gospels has muddled it all up. Which one? Was Jesus asleep in the boat? Or was he up the mountain? Something's wrong. Someone's wrong. Honestly, when I read such arguments, I wonder, have these people ever paid attention to human life? The fact that a similar thing happened twice is a key part of what God's trying to teach us. See, I can read about the first storm, and if I'm being generous to the disciples, I can say, okay, fellas, you'd seen Jesus do all these amazing miracles, but admittedly, you hadn't seen him rescue you from a shipwreck. So, okay, perhaps you're thinking... Jesus is good with curing leprosy and healing people with terminal illness or with one touch, but weather's not in his skill set. Perhaps your lack of faith is fair enough. But when the second storm hits and they panic again, I'm reading this thinking, how sick are you guys? Don't you remember Jesus rescuing me last time? But then I think of myself and my own life. And I realise that many scenarios in my life where God has rescued me 427 times, and still by the 428th time, I'm still panicking and I'm still wailing that God has abandoned me. Does that sound familiar to any of you? Ring any bells in your own lives? This is human nature. We seldom learn a lesson the first time. Now what the Bible is not teaching is that God will make everything turn out the way we in fact these two storms prove that even if we do the right thing things may not turn out as we want them to after all why did the disciples sail into these storms in the first place they sailed into the storms because they were obeying Jesus they were doing exactly what he told them to and that's what got them into trouble. If they'd disobeyed him and stayed safely on land, no problem. But they obeyed and they got wet. Tossed about and probably bruised, battered and seasick. But the key thing God wanted them to and what he wants us to learn from their experience is that despite circumstances and despite appearances God did not abandon them and he will not abandon us there's something important about what Jesus says when he walks out on the water in the second storm most English translations have it as a 
read it before. Take courage, and I don't be afraid. But significantly, the words translated, it is I, are in the original Greek, ego I me, literally, I am. The same phrase, ego I me, is used in the Gospel of John when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, truth and the life. I am the true vine. Before Abraham was born, I am. In John, it clearly means Jesus is identifying himself as God. The Pharisees took it that way. When they heard Jesus say it, they decided to kill him. God's called a lot of things in the Bible, but most are really descriptions or titles. For example, God Almighty. But he only really has two names that are strictly speaking names in the way that my name is Damien. One is Jesus, but remember he's one member of the Trinity. One God, but three people. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The other name... God as a whole is Yahweh, which means I am. Now admittedly, any person might say ego I me and mean just the garden variety. It's me. But in certain contexts, Jesus meant more than that. He meant to identify himself as God. And I agree with many Bible theologians who think that this is another of those instances. Because when the bloke saying ego I me is walking on the water at the time, you know there might just be a little more to it. The name I am tells us a whole lot about God. But the part I want to focus on is this. I am means that God is constantly present in space and in time. So he is always with you. He was with you yesterday, he's with you now, and he will be with you tomorrow. Whatever trouble or desire or evil might hit you by surprise, let me assure you, it might be a surprise to you, but it's no surprise to the Lord. He's always he's he's already prepared to deal with your disaster. The disaster that might hit you tomorrow, God was there yesterday, making a way for you, preparing to take you through that to the other side. It's incredibly significant that the very first time God reveals his name as I am, it is when his people are facing terrible suffering and evil and almost certain disaster. Utterly powerless Moses is going to face the evil tyrant Pharaoh, who was the commander of the world superpower of his time. He was essentially the Adolf Hitler of his day. 
the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, Well, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. You know, the evil forces in this world would just love to sink your boat when you're going through a storm. And two of the most effective ways they can accomplish this is by having you fall into despondency so that you give up, quit, stop struggling against the storm and let the waves swamp you. The other is to send you into such a panic that you stop thinking, start thrashing about, do a lot of stupid things and only make matters worse. You know, it doesn't matter how much water is outside of a boat and how rough the waves are. A boat will not sink unless the water gets inside the boat. It doesn't matter how much water thunders down upon you, you will not drown unless you swallow it. When the storm's raging, it's what's inside that really counts. Disasters in our physical or health or our family or our relationships or our work can be incredibly painful. But they will only destroy us if we allow them to affect us on the inside. If we become bitter or selfish or full of hatred or give up on life or come to despise ourselves or worst of all throw away our relationship with God long long story short a few years ago I became massively unwell Long story short, a few years ago I became massively unwell with anxiety and depression and my marriage ended. And I was devastated, I mean utterly devastated. And my head spinning in ever decreasing circles as I asked myself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Now, I get a lot of things wrong in life, obviously, but I 
I get some things right. And one of these is that I know that whether I feel like it or not, the best thing to do when facing disaster is listen to God's word. So one day when I was feeling especially low, and I didn't really like reading, I got on the internet and googled up a sermon and started playing it, this recording on YouTube. And the preacher starts saying something like, God will never abandon you. It doesn't matter what kind of trouble you're facing. Financial trouble, health issues, trouble at work. Now remember, my life is in utter ruins at this point, and I'm feeling pretty ambivalent about where God is in this. Obviously, I'm still to some extent hoping in God, or I wouldn't have bothered listening to the sermons. But on the other hand, a big part of me is feeling like God is curled up on some comfy cushion of sleep, completely ignoring all my prayers that are just echoes in the darkness. And so when the preacher adds to this list of potential disasters, maybe your marriage has ended, well, my patience runs out. And I say to him aloud, as he sits there on the internet, <laughs> recorded, I say to him aloud, yeah, 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 what the... What do you know about it, Charles? And would you know the cheek of it? Because the very next thing he says is, well, you might be sitting there saying, what would you know about it, Charles? <laughs> and then he says something like, well, you're right, I don't know what you've been through. But you don't know what I've been through. So you might imagine I'm feeling a little sheepish right now and a little more inclined to listen to what God might be trying to say. And the next thing he says, and that has stuck with me ever since, <coughs> If you find yourself spinning in ever-decreasing circles, asking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Then stop. Because it is the wrong question. The right question is, what is I am going to do? going to do <clears throat> now of course that doesn't mean we shouldn't plan and problem solve and work hard and get help from others and employ wise practical strategies Jesus expects us to do that he wants us to partner with him Jesus wanted the disciples to sail the boat. He didn't teleport them to the other side. But it's if we're panicking or we're hopelessly muttering 
What am I going to do? We need to stop and correct ourselves and say, no, the question is, what is I am going to do? Because I can tell you that several years since that happened, since listening to that sermon on the internet, I must have gone through that process myself hundreds, maybe thousands of times, changing that question over in my mind. Facing hundreds of difficult issues, and I can tell you this for a fact. He's not abandoned me once. I never know what I am is going to do. But he always does something fantastic. I cannot think of one time God has let me drown. Not once. Sure, there have been tough times. Sure, there have been lonely times. But God has not let me drown. In fact, he and I have had a lot of fun. And some issues, or I haven't seen yet what I am is going to do. But I'm not dead yet. <laughs> and I tell you what's more, even if I walked out of this church at the end of this service, and I get knocked dead by a low-flying girl, that would not mean that I am had left some of those prayers unresolved. It just means he is going to resolve them in another way that is too wonderful for me to imagine. And so you too, if you're going through the storms in your life, If you're finding yourself spinning in ever-decreasing circles, crying, what am I going to do? Then stop. Because it's the wrong question. And instead, ask the right question. What is I am going to do? Because God promises you this, if you keep your eyes on him, you're going to have a lot of fun finding out.